dear listeners, this is your host Palmveer here. You may have surmised from the recent podcast series in Australia that mine and David's lives as scientists do not suck. There are, however, many privileges not afforded to others, and so many barriers to hurdle for young researchers. One person who well knows this is Professor Anson McKay, a researcher of climate change, an advocate for open access, and an openly gay man in science. We talk to him about his work and his role in making science a more equitable place. Welcome to another episode of our Two Scientists podcast. Today we are happy to be in a very beautiful Spitalfields Market in London town. Um, and our guest today is Anson McKay. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. So we were talking about this before we started. You have a very gentle Scottish lilt, but you're now working in London. Tell us a little bit about your story of how you got into science and how it brought you down here. Um, so I grew up on a croft in the Highlands of Scotland and I think with my parents it was always going to be you have to get out of here because <laughs> there is nothing to do, there's no jobs, that kind of thing. So I went to Edinburgh University uh, in 84 where I took um, pharmacology, physiology um, but then graduated later on in botany um, and through doing botany that kind of got me interested in looking at um, upland conservation mm-hmm. and my PhD was advertised in Manchester and so that took me down to Manchester which is really good because I think going from Edinburgh, big city, into an even bigger city Manchester really cool and then um, during my end towards the end of my PhD um, I saw an advert for a postdoc working out in Siberia that was going to be based in London at UCL so I applied for that postdoc and um, luckily I got it and that took me to London in, in 92, and I've been here ever since. So you've slowly worked your way down the country? I have. I've gone from <laughs> the bigger city, as, as far as I can get from the Highlands as possible. And that's, that's, that's no joke. <laughs> um, so I was looking at your your official UCL webpage, and you have this amazing picture of you out in kind of some very, very snowy parts of the world. Can you tell us about where that was taken and what you were doing there? Oh, yeah. So... Um, most of my research is out in southern Siberia and I work especially on freshwater uh, ecosystems and I've been working on Lake Baikal for the like, last sort of 25, uh, 27 years. And Lake Baikal is really, really special. It's the world, um, it's the oldest lake in the world, deepest lake in the world, it holds a fifth of the world's freshwater. Uh, um, 75% of its 2,500 animals and plants are in fine nowhere else in the world, they're endemic, so it really is an amazing place to go. So I've been doing research there since the early 90s, first of all looking, is the lake being polluted? And we kind of showed that it was, but not very much. And then the last kind of 10, 15 years, we're more focusing on um, climate change and how is climate change impacting the, the biodiversity there. So we had a, 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 a large UK NERC um, funding program that took us out to Siberia. I think this is back in the photographing from 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because the lake freezes over every year, we were going to the lake when it's frozen and we're actually working from the ice, like staying by the ice because it's very easy to get our samples from there. Yeah. You kind of drill through the ice, it goes through the water column, you, we, we, I dig up lake mud, that's what I'm, I specialize in, fossils and lake mud. Um, and so we were there for about uh, a month. And that particular photograph, actually, I was actually doing some recording of my own. Because uh-huh. I, I produced or co-produced a program for Radio 4 Crossing the Earth. That was on cool. Lake Michael and our research. Yeah. So I took some recording equipment out there. And I was just recording people, recording scientists, recording people who lived around the lake, like fisher folk, uh, recording all the sounds, the sounds of the snow and the drilling, all that kind of thing. Oh, that wow. put together this, this program. So, uh, really so that, nice. was, that was one of my best trips there. It was really, really cool. It was brilliant. Excellent. So, um, obviously, you've mentioned the, the subject of climate change. You said your research is now looking at how climate change is affecting those kinds of areas. What do you see in terms of differences? And what kind of periods are you studying then? Yeah. So, I think it's, you know, it's pretty much well accepted that we're, you know, we're now in a period of global warming. And it seems to be happening extraordinarily fast. So, mm-hmm. we classify this as being a period of, of abrupt climate change. So I'm very so, and freshwater systems like lakes are are, are extremely threatened uh, by by climate change, um, and so I'm kind of interested in first of all 
how would one of the world's most iconic freshwater lakes respond to climate change now uh, in terms of global warming, but also how it might have responded in the past as well. Because mm -hmm. what we can do is we can look for um, previous periods in Earth's history when it was very warm and use that as an analogue of how the Earth might be into the near future. And so that, that takes me to Lake Baikal. So it's got this really long um, uh, sedimentary record and by looking at the fossils in a sediment record, we can go back like every couple of years and see how the biodiversity was changing. Yep. And from that, we can see how it responded to climate change. Mm -hmm. And so if you look, so I'm kind of interested in these abrupt periods of climate change. So by going back in the past, say um, uh, you know, 11,000 years ago, mm -hmm. and a period of abrupt climate change, what happened to the species? How fast did they change? When they change, other things come in. Yeah. We can look, we can address all those kind of questions and make hypotheses about what might happen in the future in Lake mm -hmm. Baikal. That just helps us to understand the current threats and all that kind of thing. So. Yeah. So in terms of an area like Siberia, how would this affect the way the landscape currently is and what kind of practical impacts would that have for people, given that there aren't many people who live in Siberia? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. Um, so I, I used to always have uh, uh, Siberia as being you know, this kind of you know, remote region. But actually, in fact, when you get there, it's it's not that remote. It's actually there's a lot of like industrial activity going on there. Some mm -hmm. of the, the world's biggest smelters are, okay. are in there. It's actually fat. I love is actually quite polluted, to be honest. Yeah. And the the region of Lake Baikal, why it's important is it sits at this um, what we call an ecotone, and an ecotone is a boundary between two different kind of vegetation or climatic regimes. So you've got the taiga forest to the north, mm -hmm. and you've got the steppe grassland to the south. And climate change, and, and on that ecotone, you also have the edges of the permafrost as well. So if the permafrost melts, that's going to release a lot more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yep. And that's a worrying, because then we could then have runaway climate change, because carbon dioxide is causing global warming in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, also, the melting permafrost causes carbon to go into the lakes, and that causes light to change lakes, which affects the biodiversity, um, and, and, and a number of other things as well. So because it's at, the, it's at the ecotone, it's actually very sensitive to climate change. Mm -hmm. And so we used to think that Lake Baikal, because it's so enormous, you know, a fifth of the world's fresh water, it's going to respond really slowly to climate change, if at all. Mm -hmm. But from our research, what we've shown is it actually responds within decades, maybe even within wow. years. And yeah. that's quite phenomenal. So you know, we, we can reconstruct these very abrupt changes happening in this region. Mm -hmm. So what's happening around southern Siberia at the moment is um, a bit like what we're seeing in places in Europe and North America uh, this year um, are many more forest fires. And so we've got these vulnerable carbon stores like the taiga forest, like the permafrost, and when those start to burn, yeah. we're releasing carbon. And then that has a knock-on effect for sort of regional climate, etc. So that's why it's a very important to study these regions because, you know, because of their vulnerability and they are changing very fast as well. So that's one of the main reasons, really. Okay. So is it also possible, we actually spoke to um someone who studies antibiotic resistance not so long ago. And one of the questions we got from our friends was, uh, is it possible that we're going to have more species that we didn't recognize before as a result of kind of melting frosts and glaciers and so on in our environment? Possibly. So in somewhere like Baikal, I think what we're probably going to see is not so much sort of brand new species being formed, if that's a possibility, because mm -hmm. in, in Baikal... Um, it's got these what we call higher levels of endemism where species evolve just in the lake and they're found nowhere else. So right. that is a possibility and we can't draw that out. Um, what we are going to see is we're going to see different communities of plants and animals. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues with climate change is that because the climate is, is um, uh, warming so fast that not all animals, for example, will be able to move as fast as the climate or, or plants, etc. Yeah. So the communities will, 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 will change around. And that might have implications for, you know, biodiversity, ecosystem functioning in the region, etc. Mm -hmm. In terms of humanity, it's probably going to have minimal impact because we're forcing agriculture down there anyway. So that's probably not going to have a, 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 a major thing, I don't think. But yeah, but those kind of questions are interesting as to, you know, how species might evolve in the future. Yeah. Okay. So David's kind of shy about having his voice recorded, despite us doing this for about five years now. Uh, so he asked me questions via whatever messenger comes to mind. Um, and he says, why does a Highlander care about Siberia and why should anybody else who is not from Siberia care about it? So 
me as a Highlander occurring by Siberia, actually one of the things that, um, you know, that I, I like about being an academic and I like about doing research in um, different countries is the actual fact of people from the Highlands of Scotland mm-hmm. have a lot of similarities with people from Siberia and Russia <laughs> in that you're, you're remote, there are social difficulties there. Yeah. Um, so there's all those kind of things that you, you kind of form a, a, a bond with. You're kind of separate from the main governments and that kind of thing. But also just in you know, terms of the, the, the land, I, th- I think people up there and in Siberia, you've got very close association with the landscape. Whereas if from a city, you don't really have that. And then Lake Baikal, for example, you've got the Buryats, the shamans, uh, are, are, you know, are, are, are indigenous there. Um, and so this kind of like sort of the landscape forms part of how you grow up, forms part of your culture is incredibly important. And so those cultural values, those cultural sensibilities yeah. are important for protection as well. And one of the reasons why Lake Baikal is a world heritage site is it's not just because of all these plants and animals and the misty, it's because of the cultural values that it holds for its populations as well. So I think in those kind of senses, those similarities uh, uh, ring true for quite remote areas. But, uh-huh. you know, we're all people, humans in the end, yeah. that get the same thing. So, um, so he also has uh, one related to the fact that you've been talking about how quickly it's changed. The lake in Siberia seems to be more reactive to climate change than you anticipated. So if we work to address this trend, how fast would it take to go back to whatever we call normal? So that's a really good question, actually. And, and it, it kind, of, kind of comes to the heart of, of my whole discipline of, of paleoecology. So um, although I'm, I'm, I'm a botanist, I'm an ecologist, I actually study sort of ecology going back through time. And we can use these uh, lake sediments as natural archives, a bit like ice cores. And we can go back 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. And what's very important for us to try to understand our environment is that if we're trying to we want to um, restore the environment to what it was like to what it was like before, what does before mean? Usually it means before major human impact. Mm-hmm. But monitoring records only go back maybe 10, 50 years at most. To go back further in time, we need to have paleoecology records. So our work in Baikal has been very influential uh, in, in that kind of context. Um, how long to go back before pre-human uh, impact? We commonly talk about pre-industrial impact, so mm-hmm. before 1800. Um, and certainly in somewhere poor like Siberia, the, the, those regions were only sort of massively populated after by sort of 1700 or so, although local populations did exist. But in other regions, uh, say like in you know, Denmark or China, the human impact goes back thousands of years. And so there is no, I don't think there's such a thing that we can really call as being natural. Yeah. Because natural means different things to different people. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we, I think we need to sort of, we need to think about ecosystems not being pristine without human impact, but how humans can live in ecosystems and ecosystems can still function very well with a full complement of biodiversity, etc. And that's the difficulty that we're having. We're not mm-hmm. finding this balance yet. And yeah. at the moment, humans are draw, destroying more and species are being created. And until we can get that balance back, I think then maybe we'll sort of, you know, that'll be something to look forward to, but it's not happening at the moment. Yeah. So going on to a more kind of social uh, theme, uh, you've talked about human impact. You must have had these kinds of conversation with people who don't believe in climate change. And have you come up against this and how have you kind of responded to those people? Um, so, so I have, and, and I think my responses have changed over time and they've kind of changed as to who I'm talking to mm-hmm. so when I'm talking to people I know I spend a lot of time trying to convince them of you know what the, the what I see as, as, as being the facts are and how you know so global warming climate change is not a belief is, is, is based on evidence it's based on hypothesis testing and try to show them the range of information and I, and I, and I definitely personalize it I say look this is what I've seen in my own research you know, here, you know, how else would you explain it? And that kind of tries to engage them quite well. Um, in terms of this thing about, you know, um, trying to persuade people who are going to be climate skeptics anyway, mm-hmm. this might be a heinous thing to say, but now I just don't bother. Yeah. Life's too short, you know. Yeah. Someone doesn't want to believe it. They're going to be like anti-climate change. They're going to be like an anti-vaxxer. Mm-hmm. I don't have any time for it anymore. I'd rather focus my efforts on people who are actually interested in engaging in the subject. Yeah. Whereas before, I would try to talk everyone around, and now mm-hmm. I just don't have time for that. Yeah. Which might be a bit awful and not very science engagement type thing. <laughs> but, you know, you know, 
Yeah. But <laughs> I, I agree. And at the same time, do you do you actually feel like public opinion is changing in any way or um, do you feel like the that group of people is just a small minority and they're always going to dig their heels in? I think it I, I think the group is a small minority and and, I've, and I think public perception tends to kind of change more and more when you have like say this summer you know you have these all these heat waves mm-hmm. you have all these forest fires people are sort of questioning but why is this happening why weren't we warned you kind of go actually you were warned yes. these are all fitting with the model we talked about 20 30 years ago and yeah. people kind of go oh okay and i think there was a thing in the press today um in the telegraph uh an ex-conservative prime minister called michael howard um sort of um leader of the tory party saying he thinks now sort of margaret thatcher of in the UK had said global warming is going to happen 30 years ago and now even sort of you know people who didn't believe it are now sort of coming around to the way that Margaret Thatcher thought about it she's a scientist you know yeah. she knew what the facts yeah. were type thing so I think there is a growing consensus more mm-hmm. and more uh, in the general public that global warming is happening I think there's still a lot of uncertainty as to what we do about it and what the extent's going to be mm-hmm. and how is it actually going to impact me yeah and, you know no one really knows how that's going to sort of uh, uh, pan out. Um, and that, I think, is probably going to be the, the bigger battle for the future. But in some senses, you know, I don't blame people for not knowing. You look at all our press, um, and it's all uh, you know, anti-global warming rhetoric. Yeah. You know, basically all the major, major media are, are, are on this as well. And only a few papers are kind of saying, look, we have a problem here. And until I think really kind of, I think that the press and the media are um reporting it responsibly until you stop having this kind of like this false bias reporting as yep, well. Yep, yep. You know, we must have a, a climate change skeptic. The other side of Exactly, the, because yes. that, that's not a true balance at all. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, so until we get stopped in all that kind of, you know, malarkey, yep. then I think we will see a, a faster change in, in public uh, opinion and attitude. Yeah. Some people argue that climate change is happening and is man-made, but those changes can be positive and not be a problem. What would you say to them? Because, of course, you're going to have the people who say, oh, this is lovely. Like, we could have the, the Costa del Sol in the south of England. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. So, again, that's a really interesting question in terms of can humans use their technology to get their way out of a problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is going to be inevitable. And we're going to have to do that in terms of, like, you know, sort of um, adaptation and, and mitigation. But as a... As, as a kind of cure for climate change, I, I don't see how it's going to happen. I mean, we have geoengineering, for example. Mm-hmm. And we have techniques such as, you know, solar radiation management, which, you know, from the fantastical having big mirrors in space to stopping sunlight to pumping out lots of soft, soft sulfates into the atmosphere uh, to, to, to cool the temperatures. Even something like that, we know that, you know, from, from the models that we run, you do that, okay, that's fine. It doesn't solve the carbon problem, though. It might solve the temperature problem. And then as soon as that breaks down, we have, then, we have even more runaway global warming. Mm-hmm. So everything, you know, you know, when we plug in all these data into various models, and models are really important, those kind of big technofixes just do not seem to work at all. Um, but the technology to adapt, you know, take account of sea level rise, you know, make cities secure, etc., those definitely need to happen. But they're not happening fast enough. And, and as far as, you know, again, we look at adaptation plans for cities around the world, and they're absolutely... They're, they're, they're appalling, they're abysmal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and all our, you know, we, we talk about what's going to happen to sea level rise at, by 2100. That's going to stop in like 80 years. And after that, what's going to happen then? And we don't have any discussions or dialogue what's going to happen after then at all. Yeah. And it's going to be worse than it is than we can possibly imagine, probably. So, again, there's all these kind of, you know, so technology is definitely really important, but not as, as a fix to what we might think it might be to, to stop what we're doing. Yeah. Like carbon reduction has to be the, the, the primary goal here. Yeah, and that's the hardest part is just changing people's behavior, I think. Yeah, but, but you know, also the, there's huge, you know, in, inequality um, yeah. in, in, in trying to do that as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure the West, you know, America and Europe and, you know, possibly China will, you know, will, will probably not be as badly affected as many countries in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia or in Sub-Saharan Africa, etc., who will probably come off the worst in all of these things. Yeah. yeah. Although I believe that countries like India are investing a lot of money into huge solar plants and things. And this actually would be hugely helpful to the people who don't have electricity in the most 
kind of rural areas of India, yeah. like where my family live in the north. Yeah, but but also you know, I, I, I don't know what the, what the stat is, but like you know, how many coal-fired power stations are opening up every day? And again, we're still our fossil fuel combustion is is, is kind of still going up. Yeah, and, and until that starts coming down, so definitely like you know, solar energy, nuclear energy wave energy, wind energy, the, all these things are going to play a, a role. It's got to be like sort of mixed energy sources. Yeah. Um, but by themselves, it, it's, it's not possible to have the energy we need for industry, yeah. for, for cars and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It may help the, the homes and heating yeah. and electricity, but that's about as far as it goes at the moment, I think. Yeah. I also read recently that the irony that um, there are nuclear power plants that are having to shut down because the water that they use normally to cool... Um, whatever it is that they need to call within the, the stations uh, is too warm. So they just right. have to shut them down altogether. So this alternative fuel source, which we're relying on to try and combat these things, is also not... Yeah. So, so I think there's those kind of issues. There's issues to the sea level rise. Many um, power stations are, are, are built on the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be problematic when sea levels rises. Um, I, you know, ironically, now that things like sort of... Um, Solar energy renewables are becoming much cheaper very quickly in the last couple of years. And so now is nuclear too expensive? Mm-hmm. But it's still is important probably in the energy mix. And there's a will happen in the markets and that kind of thing. So, yeah, um, yeah that's all up for grabs things in the near future. All right. Going back, <laughs> we were talking about um, publishing and the release of science and the, the fact that we do this in the scientific industry by publishing in journals. Can you first of all explain a little bit how that works and how we come to a consensus, um, given that you're, you're an editor of a journal so that you have a kind of unique insight into the way the process works? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'll hold up my hands here and know my attitudes to scientific publishing have really only changed in the last, I would say, sort of um, six or seven years. And that's partly due to Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's partly seeing a much broader range of people talking about this issue. Yep. Whereas before, I would I didn't really know that much about it, and I kind of went to the status quo. Mm-hmm. I was trying to build up my own career, so I try and publish in the right journals and in the high impact. I didn't care about those kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but then, kind of, you know, being eyes open to it more and more is kind of saying, okay, you know, is the model of scientific publishing or even just academic publishing in general, is it working or is it broke? Um, so the moment the process would be. So you have, you know, the, you know, I'm employed and my salary will come from the taxpayers ultimately. My research grants will come from the taxpayers ultimately. So now I do some research and then I, I write it up and then I submit it to a journal. And then if that's accepted, I sign off my copyright. The journal retains that copyright. Um, and then I can't use any of that own material again. Um, if my library at the university doesn't subscribe to a journal, I can't get that paper by myself. I need to pay Thirty, forty dollars for it, mm-hmm. you know, and then in the realization that sort of some large publishers are making a lot of money, their their you know their profits are thirty-seven plus percent. That is quite you know, that's more than Apple. Yeah, quite phenomenal. So clearly something's broken there, um, and so more and more people are sort of turning. And I think this is especially true with you know with the web and the accessibility of of, of of publishing, and now the ease of publishing articles as well. What are we getting our money for from the journals? Yeah. You know, you know, is is it is it worth the value? And you know, I think people are more and more questioning uh, uh, that, and I think that's a good thing to question you. Given that one of the factors to consider is the fact that the researchers who do all this work then, so the, those same scientists are not being paid to review these articles that yeah. the journals essentially get for free. This yeah. is slave labor. So, so you know, the the mode of funding for our journals is not that old. I think it's only since Robert Maxwell and mm-hmm. some of the yep, yep, back yep. in the 1980s, I think. So it's not that old a model. Yeah. But yet, academics have bought into it, partly because, you know, the prestige. Um, and I think academics, you know, we're, we're, you know, we got a lot of rejection and we get a lot of prestige. And is that kind of like sort of almost like a bipolar thing in terms of our, our discipline? Yep. And, you know, <laughs> for, for what we get from it. Um, so, you know, I'm not knocking all publishing at all. But I think there are alternative modes of publishing that I think are probably much more democratic, mm-hmm. um, have much more potential yep. for um, you know younger scholars, scholars from uh, other nations that don't have access to expensive subscriptions in, in libraries, etc. 
Um, and I think part of my problem with, with some academic publishing houses is that they're trying to clamp down on these. I think that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I think there should be room for all of the different models to exist. Yep. So for my own personal thing, um, I'm moving more into an open access, an, 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 an open science environment, mm-hmm. whereby you know, we try to make um, the articles that people uh, 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 write and publish um, free to anyone to read at source. Yep. Now, obviously, it still comes with an expense, and there's still a charge that people have to find, and that mm-hmm. can be funded either through the funding bodies or at the universities. Um, you know, there's, there's diff, diff, different models for that, uh, and so you know, these things are 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 really free. But I think it it's a growing movement, um, and I think it's an important movement to try and democratize uh, yeah. uh, science and, and academic uh, work in general. For sure, everybody's sitting around this table. So David Arturo, who's joined us in the middle of it, and Edward are all very keen on publishing in the kind of open access and the even the ones that aren't peer reviewed. So the archives where People can upload their data as soon as it becomes available, whereby people can give their input while the process is going on, which I think is incredibly useful. Yeah. So, so I I think, so in one sense, I've been incredibly lucky. Um, So I'm I'm a geographer and um, I'm a member of the um, uh, Royal Geographical uh, uh, Association Institute of uh, British Geographers. Um, And they approached me if I would be co-editor-in-chief of a new idea they were having to have a fully uh, an open access online journal only mm-hmm. um, and it would be done in conjunction with, with another co-editor who um, I know called Gail Davies and she's a, a human geographer um, and I thought this is a brilliant opportunity because you know geography is very much you know you're, you're a human geographer or you're a physical geographer yep. and I'm not a geographer I'm a botanist I've never done yeah. a joke in my life <laughs> so I, I kind of hate those kind of labels yeah. and I just thought this is a great way to Bring, and if it, I'm talking about the environment, you can't improve the environment without the human component in there. Mm-hmm. So human and environmental geography are interlinked. So I thought it was a fantastic thing to have me and Gail working together as Curtis Chief in this exciting new venture of geo geography environment yep. uh, being open access. And you know, and and it's 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 been really challenging actually. Uh, it's kind of challenging from say from the the human academics, the people in humanities. You know, why would I want to publish an open access? Yep. And become scientists who then would have a difference say, yeah, open access, great, but um, why would I publish in a journal that has no impact factor? And you're kind of going, well, the impact factor So explain factor what the impact awful. factor is. So the impact factor is it's a measure of how many times, the average times an article is cited in a journal over the period of two years. It was created and used especially by libraries to show you know, what scholars were using different journals, um, and therefore maybe that's a journal that they should be getting in. Mm-hmm. But somehow it's, it's mutated into this um, this false measure of quality, whereby if you get an article in, say, Nature, the, the journal of the highest impact factor, then your article has to be as good as mm-hmm. one of the best in the world. And this is plainly rubbish because, you know, the impact factor is a measure of all the articles in that journal appeared to be appeared, not your own specific thing. Yep. And so there's, a, you know, there, there are you know, many academics, and I find it infuriating. But it's not academics, it's also university managers as well who say, you know, oh, you must be publishing in the best journals. You must be publishing in Nature and Science. And I think there's just such a load of, I don't know if I can say bollocks. Yes. It's just such a load <laughs> of rubbish. You know, it should be the quality of your work going into the best journal possible, yep. not a false level of prestige. The reason why I get so annoyed about it is that, um, so when I first applied for promotion to reader uh, about sort of 10 years ago, I got knocked back. I didn't get it. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, oh my God, this is awful. And, and, you know, and I was told by my dean at the time, well, you know, it's because you're not publishing in Nature Science. You know, you're not publishing in the top 3% of the world. And I refuse to believe that a geographer should be publishing in nature and science, especially when that particular person was not themselves. Yep. And I just found that infuriating. And yeah. I kind of made it my kind of like, you know, you know but this is not how academ- academia should be. Yep. And we should not be pressurizing younger academics to, you know, to, to, to be like this. So I'm kind of like, you know, so this... So there's issues with the impact factor, the issues with sort of open access, subscription-only journals, etc., um, are all kind of, sort of coming together in sort of one perfect storm. And, just, and, and also about peer review as well. 
Yeah. It's peer review fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. um, it's all anonymous, but the bias is there. We know the bias is there, especially uh, for, for female academics, etc. Um, so is, is peer review still fit for purpose as well? And that's now been looked at too. So all these things are sort of coming together. And um, I think it's actually a very exciting time to be in academic publishing. It's kind of changing so fast. And then you mentioned this preprints. Mm -hmm. So this, I think, you know, so preprints have been around for a couple of decades now. They started off with the sort of physical sciences um, uh, for a couple of decades. Then they moved into biology. And now Earth Sciences have their own preprint server called Earth Archive that started um, at the end of last year. Um, and I, was, I kind of got involved that really through Twitter, mm. seeing a number of earth science people saying we need to have the same things we're having in biology and and in, and in the physical sciences. Yep. So that's going, yeah, definitely. So I'm kind of you know I'm, I'm not part of the main group, but I'm an ambassador for it. So when I go to conferences, I take my little stickers and I stick them all uh -huh. everywhere. I have a little poster, I take it around to conferences as well. I just try to talk to people about like why having a preprint is really good. Yeah. Because it means that you know people can see your research really quickly. You don't have to wait for six months for the article to go through the review and mm -hmm. then be published like maybe you know some months later. You can get feedback immediately, and it's, again, it's just a different way of looking at science and to get a much bigger like input into what we're trying to find out. So yeah. I think it's great. The only difficulty I'd say is that obviously this feeds back into the whole kind of mechanism of how the system works because you've got some journals that won't publish an article if it's appeared in an archive somewhere. Very few, actually. Yeah. So our experience, at least with our archive, was you know, you, know, you ask nature, you ask science, um, etc. And they all say we're happy for it to be in an archive. Mm -hmm. And so most journals are happy with that. A few of the smaller disciplinary journals are mm -hmm. saying, oh, no, because that means it's been published already. Yes. And they haven't quite caught up. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, this is happening all the time. You know, even the, the, the big publishers are saying this is okay. Um, I think Elsevier were saying that all their journals is kind of fine for most of them. Mm -hmm. I think now there's some backtracking going on there mm -hmm. that might be on a journal per journal basis and it's right. the journal so who knows what's happening there really yeah. but the moment seems to be that pretty much most places will accept a, a, a preprint quite frankly I would say that if your journal doesn't accept a preprint I would not go to that journal because it means that they're not allowing you to have a conversation about your science yeah. and in some sense it's like going to a conference you present mm -hmm. your data conference you're getting feedback on it there and then yep. are they kind of saying you shouldn't do that either yes you know it's, it's just exactly. a written form of that so you know it's, 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 it's no big deal in some ways yeah so uh, a potential negative of this David asks is there a danger that open access will incentivize journals to publish more articles and filter out bad articles less um, so there I think there are possibly a couple of things to unpack there one is Will it incentivize publishers to do something else? I think it is. So many journals have been made what we call hybrid journals. So they have a subscription, but you can make your journal, your article open access by paying an extra fee on top of the subscription fee. Mm -hmm. So so many publishers are double dipping into this restricted pot of money, which yep. I think is a and it's you know they've been incentivized to do that, and that's not such a good thing. And now universities are. And research councils are saying, okay, that's not going to happen anymore. We'll pay for gold open access only if it's not in a hybrid journal. I think that's probably quite a good thing. Um, in terms of will it uh, encourage them to publish uh, articles of less quality, there's absolutely no evidence for that. Um, I, I don't see why that would happen. And we should be reading articles anyway based and making our own judgments on the quality. You can't get the quality from an impact factor, so you have to read the article. And you can make your own mind up whether that's a good or a bad thing. You know, there is a problem from predatory journals. Mm -hmm. There are many independent companies being set up that are targeting academics saying, publish your research here and, you know, we'll you know, charge a fee and it can be as, you know, as, as rubbish as, yeah. as you like type thing. And they've been caught out many times before for the, the, of how false they are. Um, so that potentially is, is, is an issue. But, you know, you're always going to have these kind of parasites who grow up uh, alongside other movements and that's not a reason not to stop that movement. Yeah, absolutely. So, speaking of movements, you yourself are a great advocate for diversity. In fact, we found you because of the the recently established. I don't know whether the website came first or the Twitter handle came first, but five hundred queer scientists. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about, firstly, how that came about and why you submitted a profile to that? Um, so the, 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 there have been a number of actually of of, of UK organizations called um, uh, LGBT Scientist, LGBT mm -hmm. Seminar have been going on for a couple of years now. They've been profiling 
LGBT scientists, mm-hmm. and then this one sort of came from from America. But but the you know so it, I think it adds to the um, the mix that that's already there. Um, but for whatever reason, the 500 scientists gained a lot of traction, and maybe yep. because it was like 500 scientists, they just profile the, the you know what they're doing and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that when they were first doing it in the first couple of days, I thought, oh, I should do something like that. <laughs> Why not? And um, yep. and this comes from this thing whereby um, you know, I've, I've always been out. I've been out since I was like 19 years old, um, and I always had a thing whereby you know being gay is so much more accepted now. It's not really an issue. But I just kind of realized in the last kind of two or three years, like you know. You know, being LGBT is still an issue in many circles, and you know, and and having recognition of people who are uh, now that I'm comfortable saying that you know I'm over fifty, so and I'm an older <laughs> man, I'm a professor, I should like you know, you know I, I acknowledge all that kind of stuff, and then just seeing people who are you know at that stage of their career who are very out, um, I think can be uh, uh, very important. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of what I was going to submit a profile, and mm-hmm. you know, so but yeah, so I think it's a great thing, and you know. And I hadn't actually realized you saw it through that until I saw <laughs> your tweet this morning about, oh, God, yeah. that's brilliant. So, and that's how it should be. It should be like, you know, how we communicate with different people from, from you know, different backgrounds and different experiences and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think that's great. Absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, I'm also a great believer that it, it helps to improve um, diversity when you have clear examples of scientists who've already been through the process because... I go back to, I don't remember seeing any female Indian professors when I was an undergraduate, even at UCL, which is, it's a wonderful university, and the department I was in, we hardly had any female PIs, let alone anyone from very many minority groups. And not that I personally suffered for it, I'm one of these people who's been kind of bumbling through my scientific career and landing up somewhere where I have a great time, and I don't feel like I've ever been judged personally for anything. But at the same time, I can appreciate that for other people, it's much more of an uphill struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, so, and, and I'll sort of say it again, you know, Twitter for me has been transformational in that I can follow people who, you know, are, you know, there might be uh, other LGBT scientists or other academics, there'll be um, a, a person of color. Um, and, and just seeing the kind of or 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 female or um, or intersectional, and and just the kind of crap that they get, and you kind of think, you know, so you're in your department, and you know, you tell it's brilliant. Yeah. You know, you're, 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 we're quite, in some ways, sort of closer to there, I think, mm-hmm. in, in, in many ways. Um, and you know, pardon I'm, the pun. I, 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> pardon the pun. Well, so you know, somebody's been gay, so yeah, I've had my challenges, etc. Equally, I'm a white male, and I will have had privilege. Mm-hmm. And I may not recognize when a process has happened, but yep. undoubtedly it will have happened. Um, and then, you know, you, you know, you sort of interact with other people who, you know, you might not be in your major circles. You kind of go, you know, they got a lot of shit. Yeah. You know, so, and then you look to your own department. So, yeah, okay, we don't have 50% uh, female academics here. Um, it's getting better. Yeah. Um, our, our student ratio is, is 50-50. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our PhDs are... 50-50. Our postdocs are about 50-50. Why aren't the academics? Why aren't the yep. professors? So clearly there is something broken here. something wrong. Yeah. Um, and often that's a huge drop-off. It you is. Know, to go from 50-50 to something that's quite often like 10%, 90%. It, it, it is. So, so you have this, it's, you know, it's called the, you know, the, it's the academic pipeline mm-hmm. whereby, you know, females make up a, a, a large proportion, especially of the postgraduate body. You know, in, in geography, it's worse in STEM, pure STEM subjects like mathematics where it's, you know, it's, it's, a lot worse than it is in, in the yeah. social sciences. Um, but then when you get to like, you know, permanent jobs, it, it just drops off for, for, for a number of different reasons. And, and a lot of those will be um, uh, structural, related mm-hmm. to the academic profession in general, related to your own university, your own department, the inherent biases and all that kind of thing. So, so for me, um, so there's a thing called Athena Swan, which in the UK was set up by um, universities to try to improve uh, gender balance, especially in STEM subjects, um, and and geography has is you know it's half science, half humanities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got involved in um, preparing our Athena Swan statement to try and get this bronze award to try and, and look to you know where were we doing well in terms of gender uh, uh, parity and where we were not doing so well, mm-hmm. and where we're not doing so well, which is quite a lot of places. You know, how do we improve upon that? Yeah. Um, so, so, so we got our, our, our bronze award, um, and we're actually we're still the only department 
in the whole of our faculty and the art faculty and the law faculty at UCL who have a Athena Swan Award. Um, and so, so that's, you know, you know it, it is useful. It, 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 I think it is more than lip service because mm-hmm. you do look at yourself and think, so what, you know, am I just going along with the flow of institutional bias or are I trying to want to make a difference, I think, or, or want to make some changes? So I was involved in that committee. Um, and then from that, with the LGBT stuff, um, it kind of actually came from, so there's, there's our LGBT network at UCL. They give us stickers for our door mindset, like, you know, out of UCL, put in my mm-hmm. door, sort of thinking nothing of it. And I had a student come and see me during an office hour, and we got talking and, you know, and just asking about my, one of my courses. Then she went away. And she came back about a day later and said, um, can I talk to you about your sticker? I was kind of going, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. She talked about, she's asking if it was like being gay at UCL. And I was going, yeah, it's brilliant, it's really cool. But she didn't say anything about herself, just mm-hmm. interested in the process. Yeah. And then it turns out, I saw her a month later and said, oh, I've come out to my mother and my friends. Because she was like, you know, hadn't really talked to anyone who'd been gay before. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, that's still a bit, I was a bit shocked by it. Yeah. But I could really see just being uber visible yeah. actually makes a bit of a difference. I hadn't really considered before because I considered myself as being very visible. Yes. But maybe I'm not so visible. <laughs> you know, so like, you know, maybe I need to do more things than I'm quite sure what. Um, so then last year, uh, my, uh, myself and uh, uh, a woman called Helen Burningham, we decided, well, you know, let's set up a gay group. In, in the department. As far as I know, there, there's one for UCL, but mm-hmm. not one for department. So we set up an LGBTQ, LGBTQ group. And within two months, we had 40 people joining oh, wow. in. That's one department. Yeah. That's staff and students, but mainly students. Yeah. And it's kind of going, that's amazing. You know, you have all these people here who we're just not catering for at all in terms of their needs of being in a big city like London. Yeah. They'll have their own challenges. Um, I've, I've had quite a few students come to talk to me about the process of coming out. Many of the issues are related to um, they come from maybe religious backgrounds, yeah. so you know they it's more difficult for them, and that still exists in the present day, which I hadn't thought about before. You know, I'm very non-religious, so that wasn't on my radar. And then saying, yeah, actually, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of swath people here who still have all these issues. Um, so for me, that's actually been quite. I think it's one of the best things I've done at, mm-hmm. in, in a time of university. Um, and we're now because myself and Helen we co-chair our equality, diversity, and inclusion group in, in our department. We're now extending out a mentoring scheme for LGBT students, but also BME students as well, black minority ethnic. Yeah. Because somewhere at UCL, it's quite, I think it's quite middle class. Mm-hmm. I think it's Very quite white. So. Yeah. Um, minority students, a large proportion come from public school. And I think, you know, if you're BME, it can be quite challenging being in a place like that. And I went to a, a one-day conference um, earlier on this year called the Attainment Gap. Mm-hmm. And across the country, I think it's something like sort of, I think it's like 17 or 18 percent of BME students, black minority students, get a, do not get as good a degree as their white counterparts at university. And that's a massive amount. Um, and they've, they've all entered the same grades. Yeah. So something's happening in university that almost a fifth of people are, are not getting as good grades if, if, if you're BME. Mm-hmm. For UCL, it's only about 3 percent, so it's much better. In geography, it's a bit less than that. But still, we're failing a good proportion of our students. So I think we need to have more kind of mentoring of, 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 of our whole kind of different, our variety and diversity of student cohorts. So that's kind of what we're setting up for next academic session is this new mentoring program. So yeah. I have got much, so kind of really as I got older, I've mm-hmm. kind of got much more kind of involved in diversity issues. Yeah. Maybe because I, you know, and that's probably my privilege. I didn't see this being an issue before because I was white and male. And being, being gay, it was like, well, you know, I can cope with that. That's, that's <laughs> not, you know, that's not a problem. Yeah. Um, but clearly there are, you know, still great um, inequalities that exist there. Yeah. So uh, David says specifically for um, junior LGBT scientists, what are the main challenges for them? Um, so I think some of the main challenges for them are how their peers react to them. Um, and I've, I've talked to many sort of, you know, uh, LGBT early career scientists at uh, various conferences now in the UK. We have one annual every year just for LGBT people. Um, and, and they'll say, yeah, no, my boss had asked me about, like, you know, so, you know, am I married? Mm-hmm. Or there's always this thing, you go to conference, like, are you married? Do you have kids? Who's your wife stroke husband type thing? Yep. And it's just like, it's just tiresome. Um, you know, I, I revel in going, 
<laughs> and, and the discomfort that yep. it holds. But if, like, if you're younger, you don't have that, you know, that's a bit yep. more problematic because yep. you have a, a, a power relationship with someone who's a bit older older mm-hmm. than you or, or, or might be in charge of your grant, whatever. So I think for, for the younger people, it, it, it can still be a problem. But what's great about things like the 500 uh, uh, queer scientists and other networks is that there's a growing network of people around there. And you see people saying, I didn't know this existed. This is brilliant. Yep. And, you know, Somewhere like, you know, social media has many, many bad points, but there are many, many good points as well. And I think that's one, to me, is, is one of the success stories of social media. It's just seeing there's other people around who are like you. You can get, like, you know, inspiration from them, get techniques about how to cope with people who might not be so uh, welcoming, uh, etc. So, yeah. And it's great because you can do it even as a lurker. You don't necessarily yeah, yeah. need to engage to be able to gain yeah. something from it. Yeah. I mean, and so... I think that there is probably still an issue whereby, um, you know, younger people who are gay and male are probably still going to have an easier time of it than if they're going to be gay and female, if they're going to be black and gay, if they're going to be non-binary especially. Yeah. I think they're going to have a more difficult time in being accepted by, by their peers mm-hmm. or, or, or by the mentors they're going to have. And so there's a whole range of stuff there that really is just definitely not sorted out yet. There's a lot of work to do yet. I think we're kind of now realizing that, and that's got to be a first good positive step. Yeah. Well, did you hear about the thing that happened in Japan University? Oh, yes. So I forget now which university was in Japan, but they were, it was Tokyo. So they were deliberately giving less medical degrees to women than to their male counterparts. Yeah. Yeah. Like a horrendous number of women did not get their medical degrees yeah. as a result. So that clearly, I mean, you know, that is just, that's probably at, at the worst end of the extreme whereby mm. you are like, you know, making a whole cohort of women effectively, you know, taking away their power from having, you know, really good careers and being self-sufficient, all that kind of stuff and contributing to society and contributing to medical knowledge, all that kind of thing. That has just been lost, you know, for a generation probably. And that's just yep. absolutely, it's almost unbelievable until it happens, mm-hmm. but, you know, it clearly does. Yeah. But then we still have our own problems. So there is, um, you know, people organizing conferences whereby you still have all-male panels. Um, With the lovely manals. manals, yes. Yeah, and that still exists. <laughs> so so there, there, there's a... Uh, an interaction on, on social media today whereby this uh, conference was organized and they had the Bob and like, you know, we'll have, we're going to have a panel on like, you know, uh, talk about equality diversity and it had this uh, named um, a Nobel Prize winner and, and I think these two women and as one woman said, but I was invited to this and I'm not going to come. Yep. And, the, and the conference organizer said, well, I'll just say that you just didn't bother turning up then. You know, in an email and the arrogance that some men think that they can still say that to women today and, and get away with it is still pervasive in academia or in science circles. I guess it could be outside of academia as well. You could have been you know, science institutions, all that kind of stuff, and businesses and there again. But it's still, it, it's just shocking. And you do think, you know, oh, you know, things must be improving, surely. Yeah. But there's instances like that, which is just, you just think, God, no, it's... it's, yes. it's the kicker is always sometimes. when it's some women's health issue and the entire panel is made out of white yeah, men. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, if nobody else does have any questions, then um, what we'll do is we'll sign off and say thank you so much for joining us today. We've had, um, well, I've had a great laugh, frankly. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, no, I mean, your, your research is really cool and it's the work you're doing with regards to diversity is hugely appreciated, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so thank you again. Oh, but thank you. So it's been really, really, uh, I've, I've loved doing this. It's been great. Photographs <laughs> Downstairs to the den She stuck her tongue out And for a score Campbell's Big flowers are forever One of my um, trips in the early 2000s, we had a big project in getting these long sediment sequences to look at climate change impacts on Baikal and Central Asia. Um, and so we're on a boat for um, must be about three or four weeks, I think. Mm-hmm. And you remember, like, Baikal is the biggest, purest lake in the world, you know, and we have to bring on our own tap water, our own bottled water onto uh-huh. the boat. And we weren't quite sure why. Because um, the, you know, the, the economy you know, went through a really bad time, so, you know, it's not like you're working in the States or something like that. Um, anyway, so 
we were using up all the water, we were very clear about this, and so, so no one became ill on the boat. Um, and then suddenly I came down with really bad, you know, sort of stomach cramps and, you know, and all that entails. Um, and then everyone else came down with it as well. And then it turns out, we were, how does this happen? We've been really, really good. This is like team of like German scientists, American scientists, Swiss and ourselves, um, and the Russian scientists. And um, but, they, but then it turns out that when the boat was stopping, they were emptying all the sewage tanks out into the lake. And at the other side, were taking up water. Oh. And so though we were cooking with all the bottled water, they're still washing the salads with this water. But it was so bad. I mean, it really was really, really bad. That um, at the time, going through uh, southern Western Asia, um, there was uh, cholera. As they thought, maybe the boat had cholera. So they quarantined the boat. So we went back to shore. We were told we were in quarantine. So all the, the crew were just hating me. Because, like, you know, you brought us, you, you know, and I was going, but there's not, oh, God, I'm going to be sick again. It was just absolutely horrendous. Coffee Roasters in Spitalfields Market for letting us hang out there on a glorious summer day in London. We're also delighted that the transatlantic band The President Lincoln was kind enough to donate their track Fake Flowers of Forever. That's the one you can hear playing in the background right now. Finally, thank you to Ants and his partner David for entertaining us after the podcast by going out for a drink, then another, then dinner with wine, then a pint. We have fond and slightly painful memories of the morning after, but this podcast was well worth it. We hope you agree. Are the ones who are what's the word? The ones who are what do you do with journal articles when you you review Read them, them? You cite oh them, God. review them. Oh God. Yes.